Hello and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping on Thursday, February 4th at 10.30 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined via video conference by Anna Edney of Bloomberg News. Hello. Margo Sanger-Katz, The New York Times. Good morning. And Alice Olstein of Politico. Hello. Later in this episode, I will talk with my KHN colleague, Kara Anthony, who wrote the latest KHN NPR Bill of the Month. It's about a family with a new baby who got caught in one of the most arcane insurance black holes I have ever seen, and that is saying something. But first, the news. I would like to start with kids and COVID this week. At Wednesday's White House briefing, CDC Director Rochelle Walensky said, rather controversially, that vaccinating teachers is not a prerequisite for reopening schools, which is a deeply polarized subject. Meanwhile, our podcast colleague Sarah Cliff had a report in the New York Times about how many pediatricians are no longer testing kids who generally can't get tested at major test sites because some insurers aren't reimbursing even enough to cover the cost of the supplies for the test. Where are we and where is the scientific evidence on sending kids to school while the pandemic is really still pretty severe everywhere? I think what we saw pretty quickly was the White House um, try to walk back what the CDC director said. Um, This might sound familiar during this pandemic, but the White House spokeswoman, Jen Psaki, had said that, you know, CDC was still working on that guidance. They were looking forward to seeing it. And she didn't seem to fully support what the CDC director had said about teachers getting vaccinated. I thought it was such a weird moment because I actually think that what Walensky said is a reflection of the reality that we're living in now. So it is true that there are a lot of large urban school districts that are still not open for in-person learning or for full-time in-person learning. But something like 40, 45% of schools around the country are open full-time for kids. So to pretend that uh, vaccination of teachers is a precondition for opening any school just is at odds with what is happening out there in the country right now and in other parts of the world as well. And, you know, the evidence is that children are less likely to have serious illness from COVID and to die from COVID compared with adults. Um, the evidence is that children are less likely to be spreaders of COVID to each other and to adults. And the real life evidence that is now mounting in several countries and in the United States over many months is that schools particularly when schools are conducted with masks and some of the other precautions that are widespread, do not seem to be focal points for transmission. Now, those are general statements. It is true, like children can get COVID. Some children do get very sick from COVID. A very few children have died from COVID. It's also true that COVID can and does spread at schools. It can spread, you know, from adult to adult, from child to adult, and from child to child, all of the various ways But it just seems like compared to the risks of transmission where you have adults together in indoor spaces, the risks of school are much lower. There are concerns about some of these new mutations, these new variants of COVID, that they may be more easily spread between children and from children to adults. So I think that's something to look at in the future. But, you know, the politics of school reopening is very complicated um, and I think, you know, has a lot to do with teachers and their concerns about their own health and safety or other um, political considerations that they have. But this kind of weird, like, 
stating a fact and then walking it back. You know, I think in some ways it's just a reflection of how complicated the politics are around schools. But the reality is, is a lot of American children are in school right now even before vaccination is widespread among adults or teachers. And in fairness to, to Walensky, that's what she was saying. That was the predicate to what she said was that there we now have a lot of real world evidence and schools are not a place where there is major spread. Alice, you want to say something? Yes. So we do have more real world evidence, but we don't have great real world evidence when it comes to the U.S. Because like you said, there's still not a lot of testing of kids. And a lot of the data about transmission in schools is from other countries, a lot of which have controlled the pandemic and have a lot less community spread than we do. So it is hard to make those comparisons. But Margot's right in that the the politics of the debate have sort of split people into these camps where one side is arguing that reopening schools is completely safe and the other side is arguing that it's completely too dangerous until at least all teachers are vaccinated. And the truth is, is somewhere in between. Let's talk about vaccine distribution. It is still not going well. While there is some more vaccine coming to the states, there are still long lines, impossible to navigate appointment procedures, and wealthy white people jumping the line while people of color who've been hit much harder by COVID languish. Um, Anna, you have a great piece on COVID coordinator Jeff Zients out this week. How's he doing at uh, fixing what seems to be a uh, persistent problem in vaccine distribution? Yeah, I think that it's a huge problem just a few weeks into this administration. I don't know if I can confidently say how he's doing, but he's got an enormous task. When the Biden team started on this, they sort of tried to set expectations saying they inherited this mess from the Trump administration. And everything that you just brought up is a mess. But at the same time, there were kind of vaccines there, they had kind of a framework of a sense to start doing better at. And so what we're seeing, um, Jeff Science is coordinating this whole response. And he is you know, coming out um, the other day, he said that they're going to get more vaccines to people. This was the second week in a row. So there'll be more vaccines going to states than had been. So the numbers are very slowly starting to go up on equity. There has been a lot of talk. I don't think we've seen exactly what they're going to do yet to get equity for distribution um, improved. But I think that the task is huge. And so the story that I wrote was a profile kind of looking at Jeff Science's organizational skills and his ability to have rescued some other things. Like healthcare.gov, right? Notably, yeah, healthcare.gov. Um, and, you know, it was a big task, but it is not vaccinating the entire country. So I think we just have to keep an eye and, and see how things look as they get into this further. I can't help but wonder why. I mean, yes, they inherited a mess um, and there's a limited supply of vaccine, which is obviously the problem. I live in Montgomery County, Maryland, where there are a million people, a couple of hundred thousand in the top tiers, and we're getting low tens of thousands of doses of vaccine per week. So there's simply no way that this is going to work well. And yet it's working even worse than one would imagine. You have to get on multiple lists and sometimes you get lucky and all of my feeds and emails are full of people who are in the current tier to get vaccinated. 
vaccinated but can't negotiate, you know, the, the way to do it. And I keep hearing stories about people. Apparently the county is vaccinating one set of people and the pharmacy uh, and the hospitals are vaccinating another, a separate set of people. And so you end up at the wrong place and you're not eligible. And it, it's a nightmare. I mean, one would think that this is not rocket science. I mean, yes, it's hard. Yes, there's not enough vaccine to go around, particularly now. But we've been at this for like a month and it just doesn't seem to be getting any better. Yes. And and D.C. really seems like a case study on all of this. I get the emails almost daily uh, with updates about how the vaccine distribution is going. And the email goes out at 9 a.m. that, you know, 1700 appointments are now available. And then five minutes later, there's another email saying they're all gone. And so. It's the people who have the ability and wherewithal to sit at their computers, you know, clicking refresh, who who are securing those appointments. And those are not necessarily the people who need the vaccine the most, who are low income, who maybe have a frontline job that puts them at higher risk of exposure. And so the city was seeing really, really deep racial and geographic disparities in who is getting access to the vaccine. And so they tried to implement these new procedures to ensure a little bit more equity and prioritize people in certain zip codes. They can't really prioritize by race specifically, but the zip code kind of gets at that. And they have data showing that it is improving somewhat, that there is less of a disparity now that they've implemented those priority zip code uh, changes. But it, it's it's what's happening across the country where the people who have a car to get to the drive-in site, the people who have internet at home, who know how to navigate this, who maybe have a child helping them. You know, you said jumping the line. I don't necessarily think it's an example of jumping the line because they are eligible if they're over 65 or, or whatever, but it is jumping to the front of the line that they're allowed to be in <laughs> ahead of yeah. people who Thank you. don't have those privileges. Well, and it's been very confusing and state by state. And so... And county by county. Montgomery County is in a different place than the rest of the state of Maryland. Basically, you see the governor and the county executive yelling at each other. But it took me a week to figure out that the county is still only vaccinating people in, you know, 1A. So basically over 75 and frontline health workers. But the other providers in the county, the hospital systems and the pharmacies are vaccinating people between 65 and 75. Nobody has actually said that. If you get the stuff from the county, it still says we're only vaccinating people if you're over 75. Well, and how do you, you know, I think essential workers thought they would be in that early group and that fell apart somewhere along the line and states started prioritizing 75. Some are doing 65 and older. If you're an essential worker who doesn't meet the age group and maybe some are open now to those with pre-existing conditions, if you don't meet that as well, then you thought you were going to be vaccinated earlier and you've got a job that you have to, you know, see people every single day and be exposed. And these are disproportionately people of color. That hasn't really been addressed. It's just been left to the states and they've been gearing towards age, I think, because it's easier to do. It's hard to say, like, I work here, so do I get to, you know, go ahead and get my vaccine versus I'm this this old. Can I can I sound an optimistic note? Because I feel like everyone is talking about the brokenness and I don't want to discount that because I do think that this has been a very frustrating, tumultuous rollout. I think there have been some pretty serious inequities in who's gotten the vaccine early, you know, right away. And those are in some ways related to these system problems. But 
I also think this is a very difficult and large undertaking that's being done in very rapid time frame. I mean, I think some of the things that Anna is talking about, about who the priority groups should be, you know, that stuff is all getting done on the fly in this very compressed time frame because these vaccines were developed so quickly. And I think a lot of things are getting better. We're seeing the number of people who are receiving vaccine every day is rising, has risen substantially over the um, course of the last couple of weeks. So we're getting more vaccines into more arms, which is the ultimate goal. The Biden administration has secured commitments from several vaccine makers to buy more doses, and they're promising to deliver them in a relatively short time frame. So there's an expectation that there will be almost enough doses for all adults in the United States this summer. That uh, is a good sign about the likelihood that we're going to have widespread vaccine availability. There's also these two vaccines that have been authorized by the FDA, but there is encouraging evidence about a third vaccine, this Johnson & Johnson vaccine that is uh, just one shot and that also uh, is a little bit easier to transport and store so it doesn't have as many complicated logistics attached to it. There's good indication that that one might get authorized uh, as well. And there are others in the pipeline that also have some promising early results. So I think everyone is scrambling because everyone wants a vaccine. And I think everyone is appropriately frustrated with supply not catching up with the demand and with some of the technological and other kinds of frictions. But I think in a month, like this is going to look a lot better. I mean, there is vaccine that is rolling out. I think the places that are administering vaccine are getting better at it. I think the various websites that are helping people register are getting more adapt. And I think there's going to be learning. People will teach each other. I just think there's a lot of reason to think that things are on a good trajectory and are continuing to move that way. And, you know, vaccinating with two doses, every American who wants a vaccine is a very, very large undertaking. And I think it's a mistake to think that that is something that was ever going to be easy or smooth or seamless. Yeah, I did. I read a story earlier this week from a nurse who was talking about how very different this is from giving like flu shots. It's much more labor intensive because of the way the, the vaccine has to be thawed and then reconstituted and drawn out in individual syringes. So it just takes longer. I mean, a flu vaccine, you literally can't just drive up and they give you the shot. This is a little bit bit more. But at, Margo, that, this is a perfect segue into my next question, which was, yes, there is some good news. Um, the J&J vaccine apparently is going to go to the FDA, at least their results. Um, uh, by the end of the week and perhaps, you know, get an uh, emergency use authorization by the end of March, which would obviously ease things up a little bit. But there are also a lot of ominous news. Um, cases of the more transmissible variants from England and South Africa are popping up in more and more U.S. states, including in some people who haven't been out of the U.S., which suggests community transmission. And a study from the National Football League of all places found that players who caught COVID weren't necessarily within six feet of the people they caught it from for 15 minutes or more, which is the the current sort of threshold for exposure. Um, So obviously things are changing as they do when we learn more. But I feel like this still isn't being communicated to the public very well. You know, we're talking about double mask, but the CDC says they don't quite have the evidence for that. How do we better communicate to the public sort of where thing I feel like a lot of this is still a communications failure, including the frustrations about the vaccine. People don't know when they will be eligible and when they are, where they will go and how they will sign up. You know, one would hope that with the federal scientific community no longer kind of muzzled, um, it would be better, but it isn't yet. (laughs) 
one of the first things that needs to be communicated that would go to a lot of this and not a specific communication message is that everything is still evolving and scientists are learning as they go and advice will change because Americans are really struggling with that every time they hear something different. Um, they think, why would we listen to them at all? They don't know what they're talking about. We need to convey, I think, first off, the message that variants are going to change things. Um, we don't know how drastically. We should be continually looking at the science um, and learning from it and seeing how what happens in the real world. And I think that that would be something early that might need to be taken on because I hear it a lot. Yeah, I mean, my big frustrations, people say, but the, they keep changing their minds <laughs> as if that's a political thing and right. like not how science works. Like, right. yes, you learn more and then you can say something different. <laughs> right. A lot of people hear changing guidance and see it as a sign that it's not trustworthy. You know, the guidance around masks has changed. The guidance around distancing has changed, whereas it should have been communicated from the start that six feet apart is not this golden rule where the virus travels six feet and then dies in the air. It's the best of our knowledge and it's guidance crafted around what the science says at the moment. And of course, that, that keeps evolving. Um, so I, I think, you know, people want hard and fast rules to follow because there is so much uncertainty right now. And it's very stressful to hear, well, stay six feet apart, but you could still get it or wear a mask, but you could still get it. People hear that and they're like, well, then why bother doing any of the, these precautions? But I think you're right that it is absolutely, you know, a messaging challenge. And we're, we're still not there yet, even though we now have a an administration that is putting forward science and citing science and attempting to advocate for consistent health behaviors. And listening to scientists. It's also interesting right. to me, and I don't understand the psychology of this. I feel like it, it probably is much more about psychology than it is about public health per se, but it does seem like people want to latch on to these particular kinds of rules, like six feet, 15 minutes. People seem to really like internalize that, but I feel like there's some basic guidance that has been really consistent and is really important, which is like indoor spaces with other people is the riskiest thing. And you just want to not be in large groups of people. You want to not be breathing the same air as other people. And you want to be wearing masks as much as possible. For In some ways, I feel like that has not conveyed as well. People feel like, oh, well, I was inside and I was, you know, but I was wearing my mask and I was, it was less than 15 minutes. That that seems like what people have latched onto. And so I do think that hopefully there will be advice to public health officials, not just about what are the scientific findings, but also what are the kinds of messages that are the most important that are going to um, attach to people's brain in, in a way that's going to be helpful. All right, well, let us move on. Um, as we mentioned last week, uh, one of President Biden's first executive orders involves basically a redo of the Affordable Care Act open enrollment that just finished in most states. Healthcare.gov will be reopened for signups from February 15th to May 15th. And apparently HHS will restore at least some of the money for outreach that the Trump administration cut. Some states with their own marketplaces are going to reopen too, including California. Margot, you wrote about this. Can we expect a big uptake of this opportunity? It's a little hard to say. I would not expect a huge uptake, but I also think that there are a lot of people who are uninsured now as a result of the pandemic who've lost their job or lost the coverage that they had before. I think there also are a lot of people who maybe were already buying their own coverage, but their finances changed and suddenly that coverage is not affordable to them at the level of subsidy that they were previously receiving. And so this is kind of another chance for people to go back in and try again. 
As you guys may remember, in the spring, sort of in the midst of the first wave of the pandemic, there was this cry for the Trump administration to have a special enrollment period. You know, there are these waves of unemployment that were sweeping across the nation. And there was also, of course, the presence of this new major health threat. And there was a view by a lot of people in the kind of patient advocacy world that we should give people a chance to get coverage if they don't have it and make it as easy as possible. Now, obviously, the Trump administration didn't do that. They pursued other policies to protect people financially from bills from COVID care. But the cry hasn't really gone away. I mean, one of the things that I think is very interesting about this choice that the Biden administration has made is that we just had an open enrollment period. So it's not as though people have not had a recent opportunity to research and purchase health insurance. But I think the view of the Biden administration is that the Trump people didn't do a good enough job, that the failures of outreach uh, were so substantial that a lot of people who might have bought insurance if they had known did not. And so this, you know, I wrote about this in, in my piece that I wrote with my colleague, Sarah Cliff, is we described this as basically a do-over. I think there is not a, normally you have a special enrollment period because there's some new emergency that has arisen uh, that made the old one uh, not useful anymore. I think it's what has happened is not that there's been a new emergency, but just that the Biden folks think that the first one wasn't done well and they can do it better. So they're going to spend more money um, on outreach. Uh, they're going to theoretically try to get some enrollment assisters uh, mobilized to help people uh, pick plans and understand all the ins and outs of applying for insurance. And we will see. The evidence from the states that did the special enrollment period in the spring is that they did get more people into coverage, but uh, not a ton. And again, that was in the middle of the year, not as close to the open enrollment period. So I look forward to seeing. Yeah, I was I mean, I was struck and I think this was in your story um, about how many people are actually eligible for free coverage right now, not just being able to enroll in Medicaid, but are in for, for you know, zero premium coverage under the Affordable Care Act. And one would presume that a lot of those people simply don't know that. Um, that's, you know, and that's been true throughout. I mean, you know, the Affordable Care Act has been has created these insurance marketplaces and the Medicaid expansion for many years now. And lots of people who didn't have insurance before have it now. But there remain millions of Americans who are eligible for substantial financial assistance or for completely free bronze plans or completely free Medicaid plans who are not currently enrolled in coverage. And so I think it is a reminder that there are lots of people who uh, would benefit from more outreach and education that if they knew about these opportunities, they might enroll. And I was speaking with Cynthia Cox at the Kaiser Family Foundation who did a study where she identified this 4 million people who could get absolutely free plans but are uninsured. And she was saying that she thinks that the communications message is actually like a little bit more complicated even than you might think. So she thinks that it's not just that you tell people like you can get a bronze plan for free but that you have to tell people why they should have health insurance, why having a bronze plan is better than having no plan at all. Because these free plans do come with very high deductibles, so it's not uh, like really comprehensive coverage. And so she thinks that there has to be this kind of broader thinking about the messages that are being communicated that's not just like go to this website to sign up, but also health insurance really does benefit you. You get coverage for lots of stuff. You have financial protections that you wouldn't otherwise have and that those messages may not be reaching the people who need them too. Another big effort for the Biden administration to undertake. Um, so meanwhile, uh, President Biden's getting a little bit defensive, apparently, about the number of executive orders he's been doing, pointing out correctly that most of them just undo Trump policies because they would need legislation or something else to, to sort of do do any more than that. But it turns out 
that the Trump administration tried its best to tie the hands of the incoming Biden administration in a lot of ways. Uh, and a big one are all the waivers that were granted to states to impose work requirements for people on Medicaid. Uh, generally, an incoming administration can undo waivers fairly easily. And one of the executive orders that Biden signed last week uh, suggests that Medicaid officials do just that. But it turns out to be even more complicated in this case. On the one hand, the Supreme Court has scheduled oral arguments for the case challenging the Arkansas and New Hampshire uh, work requirements uh, at the end of March. And meanwhile, according to a very good piece by Morning Consult reporter Gabby Galvin, the uh, now former CMS administrator Seema Verma sought to give the 12 states that have Medicaid work waivers nine months to appeal the revocation of those waivers. So if the now conservative Supreme Court upholds the waivers, that would make the whole thing even more complicated. Um, it, it, this is, this is going to be quite an effort that, that needs to sort of come to the top of the, the agenda to, to get worked out, right? Yeah, this is actually a story that I broke um, a few weeks ago. That, Forgive um, me, I didn't see it. <laughs> <laughs> that Seema Verma was sending letters to all of the states that had um, 1115 Medicaid waivers and saying to them, we would like to sign a new contract with you where if you sign and I sign, we will give you what she described as due process protections to prevent their waiver from being reversed without a full review. And so what it does, it spells out all of these additional processes that are not part of the normal protocol where there's hearings and there's briefing and there's a minimum of nine months before the waiver is revoked. There is a lot of controversy in the legal world about whether these contracts really represent any kind of binding regulatory guidance and what they mean. But it seems pretty clear, she said to me on the record, that the reason why they sent these letters out is because they do want to prevent these waivers from being quickly overturned for political reasons. And I think the reason that she didn't say that is become increasingly clear is that it, a lot of it has to do with this Supreme Court case. Nothing in that guidance prevents the Biden administration from overturning waivers that it no longer thinks are appropriate. All it does is it says take longer to do it. And in nine months, uh, the Supreme Court presumably will have ruled on this case and there will be potentially a binding precedent on whether future administrations can pursue work requirements in Medicaid. So if you are someone who thinks that the Supreme Court will uphold work requirements and you want that precedent to be on the books for the next time Republicans take power, then this nine month delay is a good thing. If you are someone who does not want work requirements in the future, what you would like is for the Biden administration to quickly reverse these waivers and for these case, this case to go away so that the future administration wants to pursue this policy. It will have to go through all of the years of litigation to get up through the lower courts and work its way back to the Supreme Court. But it's very unclear legally how significant this contract is. It's going to have to be tested in court if the Biden administration overturns one of these waivers without doing the full process, then presumably a state could sue and then a court will have to decide whether or not that contract uh, language is important or not. Full employment for the courts. Um, <laughs> meanwhile, Alice and Anna, there is still no even hearing for the HHS secretary-designate Javier Becerra, and nobody has been named to head CMS, which of course oversees Medicaid. Do we? Is there any, any word on either of these rather glaring vacancies now? 
Three weeks in? We are expecting two hearings for Becerra in the HELP Committee and in the Finance Committee to be announced fairly soon. And the hearings are expected to take place sometime this month. But this is a delay. Obviously, the Senate only just passed its organizing resolution to give uh, Democrats control of the committees a month after they won the Georgia runoffs that just passed. And so Democrats just took the gavels at the committee this week and are getting things worked out. Obviously, some nominees for the cabinet already got hearings and confirmations, but some have been delayed. For instance, they're having the hearing on the education secretary today who will also be involved in a lot of COVID policies. And so things are moving along, but it is slowing down. And and since so much of Biden's health agenda is a regulatory agenda, this does slow things down and not having those folks in place. We also don't have a nominee to lead the FDA. Well, just to be clear, my cheering was not for the Democrats taking over. My cheering was for the Senate becoming functional again to the to the extent that the Senate is ever functional. (laughs) Uh, At least they can proceed on things. Any any word about CMS, though? I mean, there have been all these names. I'm I'm surprised that something that big and that important still doesn't have a nominee. So my colleagues reported this morning that the front runner for the position is uh, Chiquita Brooks Lashore, um, who was involved with the transition and has experience in in government and in health policy. But it is still in flux, and also, you know, with that position and others within HHS, there's also the thinking that they want the HHS secretary to have a say, and so making those big decisions before he's in place is also there's a tension there. So, yes, things are definitely delayed even as HHS gets more and more dumped on its plate. A lot of the executive orders Biden signed weren't necessarily to change things right away. They were to direct HHS to review a bunch of things and decide what to change and what to roll back and what to amend. And so that's a lot of rulemaking and regulatory work for an agency that currently has not only not a top leader, but missing a lot of the lower down people as well. Anna, I wonder, you know, in the Obama administration, health policy was run pretty much out of the White House. And with this big COVID task force, it's being run out of the White House. Is there concern that, you know, when these people are in place, that they're going to end up sort of being subservient, if you will? I mean, they're always subservient to the people in the White House. But I wonder that the White House is getting itself sort of organized to do all this. And it's going to be harder for the people who eventually are at HHS to catch up. Yeah, I actually had an editor maybe a week or so ago ask, like, you know, Becerra hasn't been confirmed yet. Um, Is that going to be a huge problem for COVID policy? And uh, I said, I don't think it is because you're seeing it all come out of the White House, which to be fair is is what Trump did. I don't think Alex Azar um, was really a huge player in a lot of this. You didn't see him making a lot of decisions or even any announcements, things like that. So I I don't know about um, subservient, but the White House will have been established. And, you know, the interesting thing with the FDA side is the acting commissioner right now is Janet Woodcock, who was involved in Operation Warp Speed. You know, we haven't seen or, or heard a ton from her yet as she's taken the acting commissioner role. But she is also in 
in line being considered for the permanent commissioner role. And so there could be some continuity on the FDA side if she's the one that is chosen and, and makes it through all of this this process. And, and also, I mean, Janet Woodcock is very much like Tony Fauci. In fact, I yes. think they started within a few years of each other, yeah. is they are career civil servants who have served both Democratic and Republican administrations um, and have been acknowledged as highly competent by both Democratic and Republican administrations. Yeah, exactly. So. I think she's she's very well respected on the Hill, just like Tony Fauci is. Um, and and so I think there are there are similarities there. And I think that she has been involved in those task force talks, you know, before. And I don't know what's going on right now, but I think we would expect her to kind of hold her own in that world. Yeah. All right. Well, obviously more to come. So that is as much news as we have time for this week. Now we will play my Bill of the Month interview with Kara Anthony, and then we will come back and do our extra credits. We are pleased to welcome to the podcast my KHN colleague, Kara Anthony, who wrote the latest KHN NPR Bill of the Month. Welcome back, Kara. Thanks for having me. So I confess this month's Bill of the Month is about something even I never knew existed, and yet I bet it has happened to a lot of families. Tell us about this family, where they're from, and what happened to them. Yeah, Mikhail and Kayla Chelsis wrote into us from Kansas City. They live on the Kansas side. And basically, they were all ready for their daughter's Charlie's arrival. She uh, was born, this has been going on for two years, believe it or not, but two years ago before she was born, they started planning right away. They planned to put her on her mother's insurance who had great rates through Blue Cross Blue Shield. They even put a down payment on daycare before she was born, but something unexpected happened. When Charlie came out of the womb, she actually swallowed meconium and they were afraid of brain damage. So she was rushed to a NICU where she spent seven days in intensive care. And, um, you know, fortunately, she came out okay. But boy, did they end up with a big bill. Yeah. (laughs) So then as we say, the bill came, how much was it? Yeah, so $270,000 worth of charges came from the hospital. And when I tell you this couple was shocked, they were absolutely shocked. I mean, they thought that they had done everything right. The Blue Cross Blue Shield, though, ended up canceling all of the payments. And here comes all the bills right to them. So of course, they're looking at each other thinking, we have insurance, we did everything right. But Blue Cross Blue Shield said, wait, not so fast. And they called them on a technicality or a very important regulation that parents should know about called the birthday rule. Yeah, tell us about the birthday rule. That's the part I had never heard of. Yeah. So both parents had insurance, right? Both parents had insurance in this case, but Mikhail, the dad, said, you know what? My insurance is out of state. He had insurance through Community Care of Oklahoma. The rates were much higher. He had a $12,000 deductible, Julie, really high. And so he decided, you know what? My wife has in-state insurance. We're in network with her. And so they went ahead and just presented Kayla's insurance to the hospital, thinking that everything would be okay, that they could make that call. But Blue Cross Blue Shield said, wait, not so fast, Mikhail. You have insurance too. And so you're obligated to cover your daughter, at least for the first 30 days of life. Then that triggered the birthday rule, which says that two parents want to cover one baby. The parent whose birthday comes first in the calendar year, that parent is the primary. The other parent is the secondary insurer. And it doesn't matter how um, what the rate look like or who has better insurance. This is a coordination of benefits thing that most insurance companies follow. And so you really don't have a choice in the matter, unfortunately. 
So Charlie ends up on her dad's less generous insurance. They don't pay all of the bill. At that point, mom's insurance should have stepped in, right? Right, right. And they did. But it was a real headache because they canceled everything. And we've just learned that they want to go back on this since we've written about the case and rerun everything again. But this time with the mother as the primary, which is just so interesting that they're going through this all over again. But yeah, they went back and they redid it, but they were still left with almost $8,000 worth of charges. It was about $7,500 that was left over that wasn't covered. They ended up saying, you know what, that was an overbilling statement and that was forgiven, but it was a real mess. And it sounds like it's still kind of a mess. It really is. After our story ran, Blue Cross Blue Shield contacted the family and said that they wanted to rerun those bills from two years ago. Charlie's getting ready to celebrate her second birthday in February. And so um, they're really nervous about what might happen in this case. They hope that they don't end up with a bill, um, but we'll see. Definitely following this one. So this family did everything they knew to do, except no one told them about things like coordinating coverage and the birthday rule. What should people do if they're expecting a baby and they want to make sure that baby is covered as soon as it's born? Well, I think it's important for all parents to talk to their human resource officers. You know, this is one of those things where it's fine print, where it really probably should be in big, bold letters on top of every plan. And so uh, that's one suggestion is to, first of all, talk to your insurer, talk to that HR person in your office. But also, you know, there are people in hospitals that this is their entire job. It's their financial counselors that really can't explain this. And the hospital did issue an apology in this case and said, sorry, you know, we have people that could have talked to them about this. We're not sure where the miscommunication happened, but we certainly have people who can help out. Another thing that parents can do is, you know, put everyone in the family on one plan before you try to add a child to your plan. And so maybe they could have gotten around this in this case, but it's almost like you don't know what you don't know. And in this case, Mikkel had no idea that he needed to drop his insurance, get on his wife's insurance, so he wouldn't have to go through all of this. Ah, well, at least we're going to keep doing this. So if you have a crazy bill, you can send it to us and we will try to sort it all out for you. Kara, thank you so much. Thanks, Julie. Okay, we are back and it's time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash health. Uh, Alice, why don't you go first this week? I chose a piece from the New York Times. It's about the situation in New York itself. It's called Nine Top New York Health Officials Have Quit as Cuomo Scorns Expertise. And like the headline says, there's just been an exodus and a lot of frustration with how the governor has dictated guidance around the pandemic without consulting his health officials and without really even giving them a heads up. A lot of major changes in vaccine distribution, and earlier with testing were just announced at his press conferences and completely blindsided the officials who then had to scramble to write the guidance to actually implement that. And it just it just reminded me of a conversation I had with a very close friend who works in healthcare in New York. And she 
has been so frustrated because throughout the pandemic, a lot of people were watching um, Cuomo's press conferences and were very charmed by how he was presenting everything. And so when she would talk about the problems she's seeing on the front lines, she would have friends and family say, oh, but the governor said this other thing. And she was like, "Okay, but that's not matching up with what I'm actually seeing. And she's saying that now that the vaccinations have started and people are experiencing these problems for themselves, they're finally starting to realize that what the governor is saying is not always an accurate representation of what's happening on the ground. And so she feels somewhat vindicated that people are coming to realize that. Leadership is hard, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. Anna. Um, my article is in um, in stat. It's by Nicholas Florco. It's Trump officials actively lobbied to deny states money for vaccine rollout last fall. This was a pretty astonishing piece. You know, Nicholas had talked to a lot of people. Um, it sounds like on both sides, Republicans and Democrats in Congress, who said that they had been lobbied by the Trump administration not to give out any more money to states. They had given um, $200 million, um, in September. And Paul Mango, who was at HHS under Trump, admitted that he had lobbied that way and that he you know, didn't think that states deserved the money because they hasn't, hadn't spent all the $200 million yet, which is a really interesting argument given there weren't vaccines to give out yet at that time. Right. This, this was $200 million for the vaccine right. <laughs> effort. Um, and, yeah. and there just wasn't a lot of guidance on how they should be planning. And states were wondering if they would get more money. So they were saving what they had. It, it was a really strange situation. And so um, he, he was able to uncover this and sort of go through the arguments. And states were able to get money, but it seemed like it was more of a fight than we might have realized at the time. Yeah. Margo. I wanted to draw your attention to an article by Sarah Cliff, who sometimes is our guest on the podcast, and Jessica Silver-Greenberg, also in the New York Times, called How Rich Hospitals Profit from Patients in Car Crashes. And their story uncovered a practice that I have never heard of before in all of my years of covering uh, health insurance, which is that many states in the country have very old, like century-old laws on the books that allow hospitals to place liens on people's car insurance settlements. So these laws date to a time before there was widespread health insurance coverage. What happens at certain hospitals in these states is that when people come to the hospital and are injured in a car crash, instead of billing their insurance company for the care that they receive in the emergency room or in surgery or wherever, they refuse to do that. They hold on to the bill and then they attach a lien to the person's car insurance judgment at the rate of their full charges, which is often, you know, multiple times higher than insurance would pay. And the result is that these people who are insured and who are the victims of car accidents are dogged by this pretty substantial debt because these liens are sort of attached to their credit reports until they get an insurance settlement that pays it. And of course, it also reduces the amount of the insurance settlement that they receive. And the story also documents the degree to which patients with Medicaid, so those are generally the poorest and most financially vulnerable patients, tend to have this happen to them the most in part because Medicaid pays hospitals lower prices than other kinds of insurance. And so the hospitals would prefer to pursue these tax liens instead. Yes, there's actually a line in the story that says that some hospitals do not recognize Medicaid as insurance, which I think the whole thing is appalling, but I think that was the most appalling part of the entire piece. You should really read it. Well, mine is also kind of infuriating. It's from the Lily, uh, and it depresses me that it even had to be written, but it's very much in keeping with the theme of 
of our podcast. It's called, quote, The Latest Pandemic Work for Women, Snagging Vaccine Appointments for Their Parents by Su Yoon. And of course, because women aren't already busy enough during the pandemic cooking and homeschooling their children, um, they're also responsible for making sure that everybody around them can get vaccinated when it's their turn. You should read the story, but pretty much all you need to know is in the subhead. It says, it's on me, not because my brother or male relative refused to, but because I don't think it occurred to them, said one woman. <laughs> Sigh. All right. Well, that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us, too. Special thanks, as always, to our ace producer, Francis Ying, who makes us all sound good, even when we're in different places. And also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealthalloneword at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. Anna. At Anna Edney. Alice. At Alice Olstein. Margot. At Sanger Katz. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.